Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a podcast series that proves that truth can be stranger than fiction. In this week's episode, entitled Tiffany and Company, I get shown around the storied gentlemen's clubs of Boston. Will my newfound connections move me up in the world, or will I blow it all? Tiffany and Company. Sometimes a jam doesn't ruin just your day, but could ruin your whole career. Having received a commission to replicate all the etched brass signs of the Zodiac that Tiffany created for the floor of the old Boston Public Library, I decided it would be a great idea to use likenesses of my face and those of my spouse and other friends for the Zodiac figures. I'm the archer, my wife is Diana, and so on. There's a long artistic tradition going all the way back to Greco-Roman times of artists concealing images of themselves in their work, in much the same way that Alfred Hitchcock can be seen in cameo appearances in many of his movies. So I think, hey, why not? But let me stop here to share the backstory of how I got this job and into trouble in the first place. There are gentlemen's clubs, and then there are gentlemen's clubs. The former are just strip clubs, sponging off the classy reputation of the latter, which are aristocratic men's clubs founded in London back in the days when the sun never set on the British Empire. Their membership was exclusively male, and different variations of these clubs eventually spread to all corners of the empire. To become a member, you had to be proposed by, and then accepted by, all the other members. Many clubs had, and still have, a system of voting secretly, whereby the members place a white ball or a black ball into a closed container. A white ball is a vote of support, and a black ball is a sign of opposition. Hence the concept of being blackballed. It only takes a single secret black ball to be rejected. This secret and unanimous voting system allows such clubs to remain the bastions of the Anglo-Saxon ruling class that they still are today. There's a classic funny story about a British gentleman who sits down in a big overstuffed cracked leather chair one morning in the reading room of his club, all mahogany panels and old books and traditional oil paintings. He tugs on the embroidered cord that hangs down from the ceiling above to call for service. When a formally attired attendant arrives, the old gentleman announces, James, I just want you to know that I won't be drinking today. Before leaving, James replies, Please feel free to ring again, sir, should you decide not to have another. Gentlemen's clubs came across the pond to America in the early colonial days and still exist today 
mostly remaining under the radar. It was to one of these clubs, called the Tavern Club, that I get invited to by an old-school gentleman and art collector whom I'd met earlier at an exhibition in Boston. John Singer Sargent was one of the club's early members, and the club rooms are hung with some of his original oil painting palettes as decoration. As I sit at a round table with my new acquaintance and three of his gentlemen friends, it's obvious that they've already been drinking. I'm reminded of how out of my depths I am by their spirited discussion of the differing rules of etiquette involved in bowing to members of various royal families. One went about it differently in Britain, France, Spain, and Germany, and several of the old fellows stand up and act out the subtle differences of form. They're, of course, in competition to prove who's had the most royal encounters. Like I said, I'm way out of my element. A few days later, my new gentleman friend invites me to a different gentleman's club to lunch with some of his more artistic friends, including the architect Hugh Shepley, one of the partners of Shepley, Bullfinch, Richardson, and Abbott, the oldest architecture firm in America. As soon as Shepley learns that I do bronze relief work, he claps his hands and with a big smile exclaims, How fortuitous, Mr. Lefebvre. We have the perfect project for you at the Boston Public Library. So with my work as yet unseen and based purely on an introduction by a fellow club member, I received the commission on the spot. This, of course, is the very definition of the good old boys club. The job consists of replicating all the different etched brass signs of the Zodiac that Tiffany's studio had created in the 1850s for the front floor of the then-new Boston Public Library. Over the next century and a half, several hundred million people have walked across these embedments as they enter the library, and the brass is worn so thin that it's beginning to peel up in places. My charge is to enter the library after hours and make exact tracings of the outlines of the Zodiac insets along with other text and decorative images in the floor. The problem for me is that all of the etched line work has long since worn off the brass, except for the corner of one piece that is under the edge of the entry guard's desk. So from this small example, I learn about the weight and style of the etched line work, but I'm still unable to discover precisely what all the zodiac figures and faces looked like. This is the point at which I have my supposedly brilliant idea to use the faces of my friends, family, and myself. Returning to the present moment, now that my express pieces are finished, all the masons who helped me set the pieces in the floor of the library comment on the obvious likeness between the archer's face and my own countenance. Then the project architect, the on-site architect, makes a similar observation, and he shares a cautionary tale with me. The architects of the original library building, the illustrious New York firm of McKim, Mead, and White, had a series of all the names of the great philosophers, artists, and religious figures of the ages carved into the niches beneath the library's front facade's ten arched windows. Moses, Aristotle, Spinoza, Van Dyck, all the way to Zeno. Somehow, Henry Ford also made the cut. When a Boston Globe reporter first looked at the facade, he was curious why the different names were spaced so unevenly. They weren't in any kind of order, alphabetical or chronological. Then he figured out the puzzle, as reporters are known to do. He noticed that if you read the letters in one section of the carved text vertically, they spelled out McKim, Mead, and White. 
His subsequent article about his discovery prompted the library's board of directors to demand that the firm cover the cost of replacing those sections of the granite facade before they received their final payment. I have yet to receive my final payment, and needless to say, I'm now completely freaked out by the prospect of what will happen when my little stunt is discovered. The associate architect then adds, Well, if you don't want to do them over, and you do want to get your final payment, I suggest that you keep all of this to yourself and hope for the best. Once again, I relearned a lesson from previous commissions. Never miss an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. As luck would have it, none of the commissioners ever noticed a thing about my transformations of the Zodiac's faces. Ah, the good old, good old boys network at its finest. Compulsive Storyteller is written and narrated by me, Greg Lefebvre, and co-produced with Peter Kokoma, who's also made our theme song. If you enjoyed this week's episode, we'd love your help sharing the show. Please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And also, if you could leave a review, that would be fantastic. Follow the show on Instagram, at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website for more information at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you don't like this one, the next one will be another story. Mm-hmm.